Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an update on the many pending indictments of Donald Trump, with the possibility that within days or weeks, both the Atlanta District Attorney and the Manhattan District Attorney will issue indictments on election interference and campaign finance violations. Joining us is Scott Horton, a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. Then, following an unprecedented number of arrests of Russian spies and spies working for Russia in the US, the UK, Germany, Italy, Sweden, Norway, Poland and the Netherlands, we'll look into how the Ukraine war has derailed Russian espionage activities. Joining us is Olga Lautmann, a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who is also the creator and co-host of, of the Kremlin Files podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations and tactics used from their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. Olga's research focuses on the cross-section of organized crime and intelligence operations in Russia and Ukraine, their impact on the West, and the monitoring of active measures campaigns conducted by the Kremlin to destabilize democratic practices and influence foreign elections. We will discuss her articles at Spy Talk, Putin's Ukraine Folly Enables Kremlin Rivals, and at the Center for European Policy Analysis, Western elites rubles bought some of the best. Then finally, with the State Department announcing today that Russia is not complying with its obligations under the New START Treaty, we'll examine rising nuclear tensions with Russia and former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's recent revelation that Putin threatened him with a missile that could arrive in a minute. Joining us is Tom Kalina, Director of Policies at the Plowshares Fund, where he works as a researcher, analyst and advocate to end U.S. nuclear testing, rationalize anti-missile programs, extend the non-proliferation treaty and secure Senate ratification of the New START treaty. He previously served as research director of the Arms Control Association, was executive director and co-founder of the Institute for Science and International Security and director of the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And he's the co-host of the Press the Button podcast and the co-author with William Perry of The Button, The New Nuclear Arms Race and Presidential Power from Truman to Trump. And joining us now is Scott Horton, a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Scott Horton. Great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Scott. And we've spoken uh, in the past about Alvin Bragg, the new DA in New York, who decided not to go ahead with a case that had been developed by seasoned prosecutors, one who was a leading expert on Rico Pomerantz. Now it turns out Pomerantz has a new book coming out any day now. Alvin Bragg has warned that the book could impact and perhaps hurt an ongoing case, but it looks as if at least Alvin Bragg's got off the dime now, and he's convened a grand jury to look into the Stormy Daniels case, which has been so obvious from day one, is how come Michael Cohen goes to jail for paying off Stormy Daniels, and the guy who instructed him to pay off Stormy Daniels, Donald Trump, hasn't gone to jail? I mean, that seems like something that's a low-hanging fruit. 
I, I think that's right. So I think there are two things that happened that uh, produced 180 degree change in Alvin Bragg's thinking. Um, and uh, the first of these things uh, was the uh, prosecution by the attorney general of a tax fraud case against the Trump organization, which produced and really only a matter of minutes produced a conviction. Um, so that seems to be easy. So I think he concluded from that that, yeah, juries in Manhattan are really quite ready to convict uh, Trump and his team. Uh, and then the second thing was the publication by, I mean, Pomerantz is just coming out, but previously we had a, we had a memoir published by Jeffrey Berman, who had been the uh, U.S. attorney for the Southern District. Um, and in that, now Berman was not directing the, um, the Stormy Daniels uh, prosecution. He had to recuse himself because of his role in the Trump campaign previously. But nevertheless, he was, he was involved at a higher level supervising relations with DOJ relating to it. And he lays out in his book a number of uh, details that show that the uh, Manhattan DA's office was played by the Southern District and the Department of Justice. So they were asked specifically not to handle this case uh, because, the, uh, U because the DOJ and the Southern District were seized of it and will be handling it. Um, and then what Berman lays out is, yeah, handling it meant they were trying to deep six it completely. So, um, you know, that means that the Manhattan DA's office was completely deceived. And I think when Alvin read that, he said, you know, this can't be allowed to stand. Um, we look like complete chumps uh, as a result of what's happened. So we're going to reopen it. And I think they, they looked at several things that could be a basis for prosecution of Trump and concluded that this is a slam dunk because there was already a successful prosecution ending in a conviction. There's, there's also something else in Berman's uh, memoirs, and that is that there was a 41-page information that was prepared um, originally that laid out in great detail all the role that Trump played uh, in the crimes and that labeled him as a co-conspirator and so forth. The DOJ at the Maine Justice waded in and reduced that information from uh, 41 pages to 19 pages by clipping out virtually every single reference to Trump in it. Um, and I think that also piqued uh, Alvin Bragg's interest. And I, from what I understand, they've gotten their hands on the, the original draft 41 page um, uh, information. Uh, and they're getting cooperation, I, I think, um, unofficially from people in the Southern District who are angry uh, at the way this whole thing was politically manipulated uh, by William Barr. So is Trump then going to get nailed on the little stuff before he gets nailed on the big stuff, assuming he gets nailed at all? I, and I, his campaign seems to be picking up a little bit now, and, and he seems to have intimidated Ron DeSantis into sort of backing off. So he's a real contender. People should not write this guy off. But, you know, you've got the Atlanta DA seems to be close to issuing an indictment. How do you see it? I think we're on the verge of a trifecta here. I think we're going to see three different indictments of Trump by three different prosecutors. Uh, and I think these indictments, I think the one in New York is a matter of days or weeks, not months away. I think the one in Atlanta is likewise a matter of days or weeks, not months away. 
Uh, and indeed, you know, in uh, proceedings surrounding the unsealing of the grand jury report, the prosecutors said that there that charges were going to be brought. So I think there's a little doubt about that now. And then that leaves the special prosecutor, Jack Smith. And uh, from everything I see on that, too, I think Jack Smith is going to recommend charges being brought against Trump. And then it will be Merrick Garland's uh, decision with Lisa Monaco, probably, uh, about whether he will accept that recommendation or not. So that's three different charges. Uh, and Alvin Bragg, I think, in addition to these charges, I think his office has identified several other areas on which Trump conceivably could be charged, including tax fraud things that he's in the midst of. Um, I'm not really getting a read now on whether those things will also be rolled into the mix or not. Uh, but on the Stormy Daniels case, there's just no ambiguity about that. I mean, a clear decision has been made uh, to seek an indictment, and that's proceeding right now. Well, you mentioned Barr, and of course, Barr, to some extent, I think, had some kind of road to Damascus change of heart because he did cooperate with January 6th. But uh, the New York Times recently really did a very good job on laying out the whole story about Barr and Durham. And it is a shocking story of uh, abuse of power, but it has real-world consequences because this crazy character who broke into Nancy Pelosi's home and attacked her husband with a hammer, an 82-year-old man being struck in the head with a hammer, you know, it's, it's pretty serious stuff. And this character then calls up the local Fox station in San Francisco and is allowed to go on the air, which I think is totally unethical, but he went on the air and and apologized to MAGA world that he didn't do a good enough job and he didn't really succeed in getting Nancy Pelosi and her husband, presumably killing them. And that was his apology. And then he went on to, to explain what motivated him and what motivated him was his hatred of the Democrats because of the Russiagate hoax, as he called it. So, you know, Barr and Durham gave respectability to this QAnon insanity that unleashed a dangerous guy who tried to kill the husband of the uh, Speaker of the House and in the hope that he could also capture her as well. I, I No, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I, I would just uh, call out that piece that was done by Charlie Savage, Adam Goldman, and, and Katie Benner, who are, you know, probably three of the very best national security um, uh, uh, reporters we have in the U.S., uh, particularly all of them focusing on legal angles, particularly that reporting they did, their story on January 26th, is one of the most important pieces of uh of reporting in this area in the last several years. It's an absolutely amazing piece um, on many, many grounds, covering many, many different things. And, you know, and I'm hearing from folks uh, close to the trio who did this, that there's more in the works still, that there are several other pieces of this that are not fully developed. So, I mean, one thing that, that John Durham was doing aggressively from the beginning when he came in was trying to intimidate reporters from reporting stories dealing with uh, Trump's dealings with the Russians. By threatening them, by suggesting that somehow if they reported these stories, it would be a criminal act. Um, and, uh, you know, that's uh, unprecedented as far as I know. I mean, I really can't think of a case where, certainly not where a special prosecutor has done something like this. It's uh, 
horrific. Um, and uh, I think the uh, the failings that are reported in this article are we have many, many alarms going off. I mean, the fact that Durham's senior staff who have been working with him in some cases for decades, that he brought to this matter, that they deserted him and they deserted him because they thought his conduct was not borderline, but rankly unethical. Um, that's staggering. And, and these things should have triggered an Office of Professional Responsibility review within DOJ uh, of Durham's conduct. And I think that may yet happen. And likewise, I think their bar uh, disciplinary committees in Connecticut and Washington, D.C. and elsewhere, who I think are going to be looking into what uh, Durham and Barr have done here uh, for the possibility of disciplinary action. So it's it's pretty staggering. You know, we've had, I'm trying to think, we had um, in the Harding administration, we had an attorney general who just barely dodged going to jail. Then we have Mitchell who did go to jail. Uh, but I'm thinking what Barr has done that's described in this article is, if anything, more corrupt and more systematically corrupt than anything that was done uh, either in the Harding or the Nixon administrations. So uh, to me, surprising if he succeeds in getting away with that without some sort of disciplinary action. But what motivates these guys like Barr and like Devin Nunez and Cash Patel and Ratliff and all of these apologists for Putin who cover up evidence and then present countervailing evidence that turns out to be completely bogus. But they've muddied the waters to the extent that a lot of Americans, I don't know what the percentage is, think that there is this Russia gate, as they call it, hoax. And here we have, you know, emerging evidence now from the arrest of this top FBI counterintelligence guy in uh, New York, Charlie McGonagall, that might well reopen what should have been slam dunk cases, the Mueller report, which nobody read, and uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee report, which nobody read, both of which make it clear that there were extensive connections between Trump and Putin, and that there were also uh, many indictable offenses. I, I think that's right. I think the, the, the Charlie McGonagall disclosures, which you know appeared in the Times only 48 hours after Charlie Savage's story did. I mean, from what I understand, the Times was struggling to get that out and to make it a part of the Durham story and couldn't quite bring it together. So it came out only 48 hours later. But when you look at it, you know, Durham was hired um, as the third independent investigation of uh, Operation Crossfire Hurricane. That's after Mueller and then after a DOJ IG report. So we have these three investigations focusing on counterintelligence operations out of the office of the FBI in New York City. Um, and that uh, uh, operation was, of course, headed by Charlie McGonigal. So now the fact that the man who ran this operation wasn't the lead of it all, um, was taking money from the Kremlin um, to very elaborate subterfuge. Um, and by the way, I think of taking money from uh, Oleg Deripaska means taking money from the Kremlin. I mean, I think that's pretty well. Well, also taking money from the Albanians well, means you're taking money from the FSB. 
Um, the, and and it's not the Albanian government that was paying him, by the way. But yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, the the um, the the Russian intelligence have used Albanian cutouts many many times in the past. There's nothing too unusual about that. So no, so I think he, just the bottom line is clear. He was taking money from the Kremlin, and that was influencing his decision making. So and the fact that we have three major investigations launched and none of them could figure this out is just staggering. I mean, it's a huge failure uh, of scrutiny. And, you know, this is the big failing of Operation uh, Crossfire Hurricane, frankly. Uh, and then I look at also the decision inside the New York Times. And the New York Times on um, October 31st, 2016, I think in the print edition for November 1st, ran a big article in which they quoted uh, FBI sources as telling them um, that there was no there there, that, you know, there really was nothing to suggest um, improper uh, uh, influence of the Trump uh, campaign uh, by Russian intelligence. And at this point, um, you know, it's really up to, it's incumbent upon the New York Times to explain in detail what that briefing was and who did it and whether Charlie McGonigal was involved in that briefing in any way. Uh, but frankly, I don't see how it's possible that he would not have been involved in that briefing, uh, because I think McCabe is the person who physically gave the briefing. It was commissioned through Comey, um, and McCabe would have turned to McGonigal for his talking points for doing it. Um, so there you've got a effectively someone who was under the influence of the Kremlin spiking a story revealing Kremlin influence uh, of the Trump campaign. It's pretty shocking. Well, it's pretty shocking, too. And it's, what is Dean Bacay going to do about it? He's a guy that sparked it, the I, former I, editor. Yeah, I think it's incumbent on Dean Bacay to explain himself at this point, and he certainly isn't looking good. Have, has anybody heard from him? I mean, it, I interviewed Will Bunch yesterday, who wrote a very very cogent and powerful piece at the Philadelphia Inquirer, basically calling them out and saying it's time for you to explain to the New York Times readers that you, you know, helped elect Trump, for God's sake. Yeah, I I, uh, I mean, I read Will Bunch's piece, too, which I thought was really marvelous. Uh, and I know from talking, I've talked with four different New York Times reporters uh, uh, over the last uh, weekend since Charlie Savage's piece came out, um, and they're all focusing on this. They're all focusing on what was Bikate thinking and um, and who was behind this FBI briefing uh, that was that was given that was used to spike the story. So I think this is certainly a very active question. Um, and I think it's really incumbent upon him to answer these questions. So just in closing, then, Scott Horton, what's your sense of whether the American public is going to revisit the Trump-Russia connections, the Trump-Putin connections, which are ongoing, uh, obviously. The Russians are probably engaged in a far more active, active measures campaign now, particularly targeting the House of Representatives to cut off funds to Ukraine, because everything about Putin and his influence in, in 2016 was also deeply involved with Ukraine, and that was why he was helping Trump and Manafort, etc. Manafort was the point man, in effect, for GRU's influence through Deripaska and others, oligarchs in Ukraine itself. So Ukraine is now 
the hot potato that Putin has. And his best play would be to get the pro-Putin caucus in the House, these nutcases from the the Freedom Caucus, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and their people at Fox News, like Tucker Carlson, to get this weak speaker, McCarthy, to cut funds to Ukraine. Isn't that pretty obvious? I, I think it is. So I, I think bottom line is this. I mean, the polling we've seen come out in the last week shows a shift of uh, public opinion, particularly it is entirely a shift inside self-described Republicans, uh, showing that they now, by a majority, believe that uh, military support for Ukraine should be shut off, that there should be no more substantial aid uh, given to Ukraine. So that's that's a huge shift that's occurred. And that's be- occurred because of the shift in the tenor of discussions inside the GOP and the fact that this group, let's call them the Taliban 20, um, maybe they were shut out and did very poorly in the election, but then in the, um, all the proceedings surrounding uh, uh, McCarthy's um, uh, seizure of the speakership, they played an outsized role and their issues were allowed to dominate the stage for the GOP and lead among their issues is this anti-Ukraine viewpoint. Um, and I think we're going to see this in the new Congress, I think, on both sides. So we have Jim Jordan is basically taking up Russiagate um, as his central uh, issue um, in this new committee, uh, which is a committee on the weaponization uh, of government. Um, uh, and uh, that everything I see about this and all his descriptions of what's being done, it is uh, John Durham 2.0, all over again, exactly Durham. And I think the strategy is to use Durham's report, which they, ex- which I think they're getting directly from Durham in violation of the DOJ rules and ethics. I think they're going to use that as a basis. And then I think conversely, on the Senate side, um, Senator Durbin has already said um, he's quite focused on Charlie Savage's article uh, and the later article about McGonagall, and he said, you know, we're going to be holding hearings into this. So I think we're going to we're going to see dueling hearings between the Senate and the House, which really talk about all of this history. You know, Russian influence on Trump, Operation Hurricane Crossfire, the three investigations, the role of John Durham. So it's going to be it's going to be with us for quite some time yet. Well, Scott Horton, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Scott Horton, who's a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. We're going to take a brief station break and be back looking into the unprecedented number of arrests of Russian spies and spies working for the Russians and how the Ukraine war has derailed Russian espionage activities.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Olga Lautmann, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who is also the creator and co-host of the Kremlin File podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations, and tactics used from their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. Olga's research focuses on the cross-section of organized crime and intelligence operations in Russia and Ukraine, their impact on the West, and the monitoring of active measures campaigns conducted by the Kremlin to destabilize democratic practices and influence foreign elections. And she has an article at Spy Talk, Putin's Ukraine Folly Enables Kremlin Rivals, and another at the Center for European Policy Analysis, Western Elites, Rubles Bought Some of the Best. Welcome to Background Briefing, Olga Lautman. Hi. Well, thanks for joining us, Olga. And your article points out that there have been an unprecedented number of arrests of Russian spies and spies working for Russia in the US and Germany, Italy, Sweden, Norway, Poland, and the Netherlands. And that essentially the Ukraine war has derailed Russian espionage activities. So let me begin by asking you, Olga, whether there is another component here in as much as I'm hearing from CIA and other sources that they're overwhelmed with the number of defectors that are coming out of the SVR and the FSB, etc., and that the same is happening in Western Europe. Is that something that you're tracking as well? Uh, yes, I have heard this. And there are several factors, and it's almost like the perfect storm. Because you have, on one hand, all those atrocities coming out of Ukraine, which now has tainted Russia and makes it obviously, you know, uh, more difficult for people to praise Russia, work with Russia, um, especially with the oligarchs being um, locked in Russia, sanctioned. Um, their monetary, their financial movements being monitored, um, their shell companies being looked at. Um, and it's the same happening across Europe, happening in the United States. So you have the intelligence services, both intelligence and law enforcement now, who are tracking everything. So that is one element. Um, and then the second is you do have a lot of defectors. I've heard um, the same thing that are uh, coming out and, you know, assisting um, Western intelligence services and law enforcement. And then the third is you have an unprecedented war breaking out basically between intelligence services, for instance, the Wagner Mercenary Group, and the Russia's defense ministry and the Kremlin elite. So I think it's a matter of these three factors together. This is why you are seeing not only that these operations are being blown open, but that Western countries are looking very closely into their intelligence and law enforcement and military agencies uh, to see any um, suspicions of this happening, especially the fact that you know, NATO is so close to, I mean, it's not an eventual war with Russia, but it definitely is at a boiling point and you don't need anyone right now passing sensitive information to the Russians. But there have been 35,000 Russians who have entered the United States recently seeking asylum. 
So it's an mm-hmm. extraordinary exodus, and we know that the numbers in Europe, at least a million have left, haven't they not? Yeah, well, approximately, I mean, uh, a few weeks after uh, Putin announced his mobilization, which, by the way, I said the minute he announced his mobilization, that will be the beginning of the end for him. Um, the minute he announced the mobilization, you saw just within a short two weeks, probably uh, three quarters of a million Russians fleeing because they did not want to go end up as cannon fodder, you know, on the front lines in Ukraine. So let's talk about some of the people that have been arrested working for the Russians. You're starting with McGonagall here, the former top FBI counterintelligence guy working out of the main counterintelligence office in New York. And then you have Arthur E. arrested at the Munich airport on January the 22nd as he returned from the U.S. And then there's another German intelligence officer, Carsten L., who was arrested last month. And on January the 19th, a Swedish court sentenced a senior employer of its counterintelligence service to life in prison and his brother to 10 years for spying for the Russians. And then an Italian Navy captain was was arrested for selling documents to a Russian military officer. In Bulgaria, there have been several people arrested, including three defense ministry officials over suspicions for spying for Russia. And there have been arrests of a Russian-born couple of suspicion of spying in November. And in addition, Norway, Poland and the Netherlands have arrested GRU agents as well last year. So those are just some of the ones that you've identified. One of the more disturbing things that you also mentioned in your article, Olga, is that the UK government enabled the Wagner's head, Prigozhin, to circumvent sanctions in 2021 to launch a legal case against Elliot Higgins, the founder of the Bellicat Investigations, who who did such extraordinary work on exposing the attempted poison with Novichok of, of Navalny. That was clearly an example of trolling, using uh, the law, or Western law, to punish somebody that, that was embarrassing the Russian intelligence services. That's an extraordinary story, isn't it? It is unbelievable. Unbelievable. That they enabled a British law firm handling the case to accept direct wire transfers from Pergozin, who was under sanctions. The Brits did that Mm -hmm. to their most effective open-source intelligence operation, Bellingcat. I I mean, what's going on in the UK? I thought the British intelligence services were influential. Well... What the bigger picture is over the past few decades, you literally have London which turned to London bread because you have had so many of the oligarchs and uh, Kremlin-linked businessmen who have flooded London with money. On this particular story, this is mind-blowing. I mean, Wagner Mercenary Group is a terrorist organization. Um, they operate across Africa. They commit atrocities. They operate in uh, Syria. Um, they commit beheadings and tortures and, you know, mass murder and siphon resources out of Africa. You see what is happening now. They're in the news literally hour on the hour um, from their operations in Ukraine. And here you have, you know, Prigozhin, who is one of the co-founders of uh, Wagner, 
suing Bell and Cat for basically saying that he was one of the co-founders of Wagner. And he uses his influence inside the British government in order to issue these waivers and and be able to use their courts to sue them. And this is not the first time. This has been one of the main tactics used by Russian uh, the Kremlin, Russian intelligence services, Russian businessmen using Western institutions against us. So if they want to silence journalists, they sue them. Even if the case obviously will eventually be thrown out, it becomes costly. You have to deal with, you know, the stress of having this lawsuit, the power that these people have. And, you know, if you're a journalist trying to expose corruption or intelligence operations, to to go through all of that against someone who owns, you know, people in the government is extremely difficult. And that case, I mean, now luckily, I think after that story came out, Parliament is uh, launching an investigation and, you know, looking into it. But that is just another uh, case of how, in the most absurd way, you know, that uh, the Putin's uh, cronies are using our institutions to go after us. And UK sanctioned Wagner for you know, their operations in Libya. So, I mean, they basically uh, helped Prigozhin bypass their own sanctions. And then on top of it, he's sitting in Moscow and wired money from Moscow straight to the law firm. I mean, the story is incredible. Well, as you point out in your article at uh, Spy Talk, uh, Putin's Ukraine folly enables Kremlin rivals. You point out that the co-founder of the Wagner Group, Bogosian's partner, was a GRU lieutenant colonel, Dmitry Utkin, who co-founded it, and he named it the Wagner Group after Richard Wagner, Hitler's favorite composer. And this guy was such an admirer of the Nazis that, I'm reading from your article, that he adopted Wagner as his Spesnas call sign, and he tattooed himself with the distinctive double lightning bolts of Hitler's Waffen SS symbols, uh, you know, which indicate to me that this guy is a, is a fascist. And of course, this is the irony: is that Russia appears to be acting as a fascist state under a fascist leader who's invading a neighboring country, and yet they're fighting their war in Ukraine on the pretext that they're liberating Ukraine from fascists. Mm-hmm. Well, that just shows you out of all the other insanity that comes out of the Kremlin. Um, this is a perfect example because they are, you know, claimed to be denazifying Ukraine with a Jewish president. Meanwhile, they are relying heavily on Wagner, who has had, you know, these operations assigned and has played a central part over the past year in the Russia's fallout assault in Ukraine. And it's founded by someone who worships Nazis. And nonetheless, um, to go further in the article, I mean, so you have this lieutenant GRU colonel who is the co-founder of Wagner. And, you know, for the longest time, the West was tiptoeing around. This is a private mercenary company. They're not attached to the Kremlin. Meanwhile, there is no such thing as private mercenary companies inside of Russia. They're against the Russian constitution. 
And Wagner was on a military base with a GRU special unit. So in order to get to Wagner, you had to drive through a gate, pass through a GRU checkpoint, and then you would go, and then you have Wagner on one side and the special brigade, uh, GRU brigade, on another side. So, I mean, it just shows you basically, you know, how... All of this is open. There's absolutely, you know, no hidden identity of who was behind Wagner. But until uh, the atrocities started in Ukraine last year, the full-scale assault, now suddenly people are choosing to deal with it. Uh, But this was known since the founding of uh, Wagner, which was founded to annex Crimea, and to invade Ukraine in 2014. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Olga Lautman, what's going on with Rogozin now? Is he just drunk with power? He's challenging the Russian military, and he is taking credit for victories, so-called victories, in the Donbass. And I imagine uh, that there, he's making some powerful enemies, and that one day he might fall from a fifth or sixth floor window But at the moment, what do you think is going on? Why is he so openly challenging the military? Well, it's very interesting because I think that he is, um, you know, uh, attempting to grab power. Putin is in a very weak position right now because he, you know, is relying both on defense ministry and Wagner mercenaries in order to try to make some kind of gain in Ukraine. And so he needs both of them. But at the same time, Prigozhin has made so many enemies and and he's using uh, the typical populist tactic that Russia deploys abroad. Now Russia is getting a taste of their own medicine from Prigozhin because he has gone after the Putin's elite inner circle, his uh, senior aide Kirienko. He has obviously we've seen, you know, the public fighting with Russia's defense ministry. He um, went after uh, Medvedev, who was the former president slash prime minister, who basically gave a prediction of, you know, what would happen with the West, the collapse in 2023. And he said that Medvedev was having erotic fantasies. So he basically is going after everyone, including the oligarchs. He actually, um, then the last year, um, demanded basically that they hand over their money to the people, which is a populist message. And he basically said, you know, enough of your luxurious life and pools and, you know, vacations and yachts, uh, the people, you have to hand money over to the people. So you see he is crossed, he's burning every single bridge. So I honestly, once his, you know, um, usefulness expires, I don't see a good ending for him. And on top of it, he's also worrying the security services inside of Russia because of not only one, his, uh, you know, uh, the tension that he's received with the loyalty he's received for, from so many, but also he operates one of the most extensive social media slash bot troll networks, which we saw deployed on the United States during Russia's attack in 2016 on our election. So now it is, everything that he did 
uh, you know, globally is now being deployed on Russian soil against the Russian government. Well, Olga Lapman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to take a brief station break and back looking into the State Department's announcement today that Russia is not complying with its obligations under the New START Treaty. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Tom Kalina, Director of Policy at the Plowshares Fund, where he works as a researcher, analyst, and advocate to end U.S. nuclear testing, rationalize anti-missile programs, extend the non-proliferation treaty, and secure Senate ratification of the New START Treaty. He previously served as Research Director of the Arms Control Association, was the Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Institute for Science and International Security, and the director of the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He's the co-host of the Press the Button podcast and the co-author with William Perry of The Button, The New Nuclear Arms Race and Presidential Power from Truman to Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tom Kalina. Ian, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Tom. And today the State Department announced that Russia is not complying with its obligations under the New START Treaty to facilitate inspection activities on its territory, citing specifically the Bilateral Consultative Commission, which is a part of the treaty and its treaty-mandated timeline. Inspections have been halted since 2020 due to Russia's non-compliance. So clearly the U.S. has been giving Russia a certain amount of room. We're now in 2023 and they still haven't complied. Uh, you know, it's it's a non unexpected situation that we're in right now, but it's certainly um, not welcome, and it's very unfortunate. Um, and I, you know, I just want to say, you know, to be clear off the top, that the goal of the Biden administration in in issuing this report, calling out Russia for its non compliance, is to get Russia back into the New START treaty. Uh, that is the goal here. Both the United States and Russia should know full well that the New START Treaty is is clearly in their best interests to be a part of. For both countries, the treaty limits the number of nuclear weapons, an equal amount on both sides, 1,550, uh, that both sides can have at any given time. So, so the New START Treaty is essentially important for limiting uh, arms races in the future, for limiting the number of nuclear weapons we have to build to be secure and therefore saving money on both sides. And so it's it should be in Russia's interest too. And I think that they they know that it is. The problem now is has gotten all caught up in the politics of Ukraine. 
and higher ups in the Russian government are trying to hold the treaty hostage or gain leverage by using the treaty uh, to criticize the United States for supporting Ukraine. That's just not going to work. I mean, it, it, so so the goal here is to how do we convince Russia um, that this treaty is in its interests and it's not worth playing games with it? Well, apparently a session of the Bilateral Consultative Commission on the treaty was supposed to happen in Egypt in late November, but it was called off uh, and the U.S. blames Russia for the postponement. And then the U.S. today basically said that Russia's in completely welcome to come and inspect U.S. facilities at any time. What was the last time the Russian delegation showed up and inspected U.S. nuclear sites where I guess you have what do they inspect the bombers? The, I mean, they can't inspect the submarines, but can, do they expect the silos? What, what exactly do they inspect? They inspect everything. I mean, I mean, you know, the New Star Treaty is, is an incredible document because it allows both sides um, pretty much free range within limits um, to go to nuclear facilities. Again, both sides can do this. So there's equivalency. Um, they can both go and reassure themselves that the number of nuclear weapons that we say we have are actually the number of nuclear weapons that we have deployed on our systems. And the same for Russia. So, for example, uh, American inspectors can go over to Russia and visit their missile silos and, and fields and go to look to see how many warheads are on a given missile. Or, yes, go visit a submarine. Uh, and at random, pick a missile off that submarine and say, I want to know how many warheads are on that missile on that submarine. So this is boots on the ground, you know, your eyes don't lie, verification to reassure ourselves that what the Russians are saying is true and what the United States is telling the Russians is true. Uh, and without that, and, and, and that process of verification and inspection is what Russia is calling into question. Uh, and Russia is refusing to allow uh, U.S. inspections, as you said, the United States is very happy to have Russia come over here and inspect our facilities if we have a reciprocal agreement going. But but that's the basis of all of this. This has to be reciprocal. Both sides draw benefit out of this. Um, and, you know, it, the question is, how do we convince uh, President Putin and Russia to realize that holding this treaty hostage that's in his best interests uh, over the war in Ukraine is simply not worth it? So you said that, what, it was 1,550 that was the threshold for both sides? Deployed so, so both sides, uh, right, can have 1,550 deployed strategic nuclear weapons. And, and, and this means warheads deployed on long-range delivery vehicles. So mm -hmm. it's, it doesn't include the shorter-range weapons that people are worried about that might be used in Ukraine, for example. It includes the weapons that are loaded on long-range missiles, uh, on submarines, and on long-range bombers that could reach between the United States and Russia. Those are the weapons we're talking about. But according to the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, Russia has 5,977 nuclear warheads, 1,588 of which are deployed. So they're above that threshold, not very much. And the U.S. has 5,550 nuclear warheads, including 3,800 active warheads. So, 
Well, well, this this is a difficult thing to do um, without showing any visuals because it's hard to describe numbers on a on a podcast. Right. But there's different ways to talk about these numbers. So what if you're talking about you know warhead uh, numbers in the five thousand range, mm -hmm. that includes everything that the U.S. and Russia has on each side. So that's not just the deployed. So what I was talking about under New START is the deployed treaty accountable warheads. And this gets very lawyer-like, so I apologize. Right. Um, right. But some, some warheads are deployed, and then you have others that are in storage, and then you have others that are waiting to be retired, and others that are in reserve. So that's how you get to the five or 6,000 number, is if you add all those things together. Hmm. But New START, the treaty New START is just counting um, the the weapons that are on the delivery systems, the missiles, the bombers, the submarines. Um, and, and so that's how you get those distinctions between what New START is tracking. Uh, but that doesn't mean that countries can't have more nuclear weapons that are um, not on strategic delivery vehicles or are in storage or are in reserve. Um, and so, you know, my hope would be that we'd eventually get onto treaties that cover all of those warheads. But unfortunately, right now, we haven't gotten that far. The treaty that we have today, the New START Treaty, just covers uh, warheads on long-range delivery vehicles. So let's talk about some of the stuff that's come from Putin, some of the alarming statements. And there have been a series of them. And, of course, Medvedev is also the deputy head of Russia's Security Council, has threatened that if Russia loses a war, he could provoke a nuclear war. Just to quote him, nuclear powers do not lose major conflicts on which their fate depends, obviously referring to Ukraine. This should be obvious to anyone, even to a Western politician who has retained at least some trace of intelligence. And then more recently, Putin talked about that the U.S. is developing a first strike capability, a disarming first strike, to quote him. Is that Real or is it paranoia? In other words, there, there were exercises or planning for a first strike during the Cold War, but both sides had a second strike capability, which made the notion of a first strike pretty impossible, not to mention the massive damage to the planet that we've done, even if you're just firing your weapons at the silos of the other side, whether, whether you'd get the weapon before it left the silo is another question. So that's kind of a relic of the Cold War. But why is Putin bringing back that notion that the U.S. is trying to somehow neutralize the very first strike capability, which we're talking about in terms of strategic nuclear weapons? Well, you know, it's a great question. I mean, I mean whether or not Russia would use nuclear weapons in the Ukraine conflict um, is, is really the question that, that we have to grapple with. And, and I think one way to think about it is that, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that that President Putin would rather win Ukraine without using nuclear weapons, right? I think he understands the risks of going nuclear in terms of escalating the conflict and possibly inviting a nuclear strike on Russia. So I think any leader, and, and whether Putin is rational or not, is hard to say, but any leader would want to avoid going to the nuclear level in a conflict because you just don't know where it goes from there. Having said that, if Putin is faced with defeat in Ukraine, and we can discuss what that means, but probably losing Crimea, for example, or getting even pushed all the way out of, of eastern Ukraine, 
uh, would be seen as defeats for President Putin and Russia. And, and, and is President Putin so concerned about that that he might um, question the viability of his leadership, right? In other words, if, he, if Russia loses Crimea, does that mean that Putin would get overthrown and, and, and potentially lose his life? And, and in that case, would he be willing to take such a risk as to use nuclear weapons to somehow convince the West to back off on Ukraine? Now, let's look a little bit at the question of what is using nuclear weapons in Ukraine? mean, because presumably he wouldn't launch nuclear weapons against a NATO state or the United States. So there wouldn't be this kind of first strike, as you were describing it, dynamic against NATO, which might provoke a retaliatory strike, kind of Cold War stuff. But I think what, what Russia might contemplate is use of a nuclear weapon against Ukraine. Now, Ukraine doesn't have nuclear weapons, so it can't retaliate. And it doesn't have a nuclear guarantee like a NATO state would um, to, to respond to a nuclear attack. So Putin could imagine that he could attack Ukraine with nuclear weapons and might, got, might not get a nuclear response back. And in fact, I, I don't think there should be a nuclear response. I think there's many other kinds of military responses that NATO can mount to try to deter uh, Russia from launching a nuclear strike at Ukraine. But all of that is to say that that the, the real danger here um, is that President Putin uh, gets into a corner, thinks that he's losing, and is so desperate that is willing to take the real risk um, of using nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And, and we simply can't rule that out. And that's what makes the end game of the Ukraine war so complicated because we all want Ukraine to win, um, but yet there's this, there's this seed of doubt that if you push Russia far enough, it may uh, drive Putin into a situation of desperation, at which point he might escalate using nuclear weapons. And so the question is, how do we help Ukraine win without provoking nuclear war at the same time? Right, but if Putin honestly believes that the US is prepared for a counterforce, first strike, in other words, shoot U.S. missiles neutralizing his strategic missile inventory, both on submarines, bombers, and in silos. That's, that goes way beyond using a tactical nuke in Ukraine. If that's his thinking, I don't know whether he believes it or not, or whether it's just paranoid musings. But just in the last minute here, I wanted to touch on what former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson said just the other day, he was in a phone conversation with Putin back on February the 11th before Russia invaded Ukraine, trying to talk Putin out of invading Ukraine because they had the intelligence, they knew he was, he was planning on it. And in the course of this conversation, apparently uh, Putin threatened uh, Johnson by saying that, that a missile could arrive in a minute, and a Russian missile could arrive I seemingly to the UK in a minute, I guess he's talking about a hypersonic missile. That's pretty scary, isn't it? I mean, the Kremlin's tried to deny that they said it or maybe it was said in jest, but I don't think you joke about that kind of thing, particularly when one nuclear power is talking to another nuclear power. 
Right. I mean, you know, I wasn't in the room. I have no idea what Putin said to to, to Boris Johnson. Um, he certainly could have said that. I mean, we know how, we, Russia has the capability to do that. So, in other words, the, the, all the threats that that Putin has 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 talked about, he doesn't have to make. He's got the capability. Uh, we'd have the same worries about what Russia might do, regardless of the threats um, that they made. And so, you know, the, the, the bottom line is that we have to worry about these weapons that Russia has. We have to worry about a country that's willing to so illegally, brazenly, brutally uh, invade a country like Ukraine. We have to worry that they might do unspeakable things that we would never consider doing. Um, and so that's that's unfortunately the situation we're in. Uh, the Biden administration is doing a great job, in my opinion, of navigating this fraught space of of supplying Ukraine with weapons, but at the same time not going so far as to provoke a Russian response. And that is, you know, that is the the fine line that they're walking. They've been doing it well so far. And I'm just hoping that we don't get to a point where we get so overconfident that that none of the moves we've done so far have caused a Russian response that that we go further than we should. And again, I don't think it's any I don't think it's about any particular weapon system, like whether it be t tanks or fighter aircraft. It's are we pushing Russia into a situation where they think they're going to lose? Putin gets desperate and therefore lashes out. Well, Tom Kalina, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Tom Kalina, who's Director of Policy at the Plowshares Fund, where he works as a researcher, analyst, and advocate to end U.S. nuclear testing, rationalize anti-missile programs, extend the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and secure Senate ratification for the New START Treaty. He previously served as a research director of the Arms Control Association, was executive director and co-founder of the Institute for Science and International Security, and the director of the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And he's the co-host of the Press the Button podcast and co-author with William Perry of The Button, The New Nuclear Arms Race and Presidential Power from Truman to Trump. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Well,